please turn this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. We'll read verses 31 and 32. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks things to us that of our flesh sound too hard for us to bear. But we thank you that you have granted us grace for the sin that we have committed and you have granted us your spirit to empower us to keep your commands not with the strength of man but with supernatural strength that comes from you. May we now hear your word and may it resound in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the providence of God and the timing of this sermon on marriage. As many of you know and have, if you keep up with the news this past week, the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, a law passed by Congress in 1996, which said that the federal government itself would only recognize marriage between a man and a woman. Now you may question why I bring this up. You may say, what's the correlation besides the fact that, you know, this passage is about marriage, but you're talking about a different type of marriage. But there are, truly, correlations. Christians from many denominations have fought for several decades now to keep marriage the way God Himself defines it. That is, between a man and a woman. And when I say fought, I don't mean literally fought, but we have rallied in the halls of governments, both local and national, as well as in courts, to retain a biblical understanding and a scriptural understanding of marriage. We know and have understood that if that battle is lost and it opens up a devil's brew of things that we really don't want to deal with that could be further down the road. Our enemy, though, has been fighting to destroy marriage for more than just the last two decades. He has been after us, and it's only been recently that Christians have started to care, particularly non-Roman Catholic Christians. For many... The timing of our arrival, and I, I don't mean to present this in a, a way that you will think that there is no hope, but in, in some cases, the timing of our arrival, that is, Christians' arrival to the battle for marriage, is kind of like the reinforcements that arrived at Custer's last stand two days after the battle had taken place. He had asked for reinforcements, and they did not arrive until two days late. And, of course, the battle had already been fought. Custer and his men had been wiped out. But just for a little bit of historical clarity, do remember that that was one battle in a much larger war. Now, whether or not you consider that war just, that's for a different time and place. But the outcome of that battle, while very destructive, did not determine the outcome of the war. We know, no matter what your position is on the end times, everyone believes, if you're a Christian, that the Lord Jesus is the, the overcomer. And he is victorious. Now, while not trying to neglect the importance of the government upholding Christian marriage, I would say that for us, this is a rear guard action. The main battle which was years in the making, 
was mostly overlooked by Protestant Christians, and sadly, it was fought heavily by Roman Catholics, while Protestants were busy enjoying the 50s. And that is the battle over no-fault divorce. Now, there are disagreements by many over what Jesus is saying in this passage, particularly once you get to the smaller details. But if you look, and I want us this morning to look at the broader implications of what he is saying. I realize that there are some who believe that divorce is only permissible in a few select situations and remarriage is never an option. There are some who say that divorce is permissible in some situations and remarriage is an option. And then there are some who say divorce is okay pretty much whenever and remarriage is okay whenever. Well, the Scripture makes clear, and what I hope that we see this morning is not the details on when is remarriage permissible, because that would take several lessons, and I'm not prepared to get or to stay in these two verses for several weeks. So that will be for another time and place. But what I want us to hear is the broader biblical issue of what marriage is before God and how marriage itself is for life. And God's view of divorce is not nearly as broad as the popular view of divorce is today. Now, I need to say a few things at the outset just to just so everyone will hear and not misinterpret what I'm saying. This sermon is not intended to lump all divorce together. And I will not, and I do not believe, God's Word teaches that divorce in any situation is wrong. Jesus said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. So there is a time when divorce under certain circumstances would cause the divorced parties would commit adultery if they were to remarry. That is what Jesus is saying. Now again, I realize there's a lot of qualification, a lot of understanding, and a lot of study that should go into that. But I don't want, us, I don't want you to hear me say, because I'm not saying it, that divorce is always wrong and that divorce is always a sin. Because it is not. There are biblical reasons why this is permitted and if that has affected you or someone you know, I don't want you to think that I stand to condemn all people who have ever been divorced. But again, there are some who lump divorce together by saying, you know what? Pretty much, if you are really struggling and if you try for, for a while, as in a year, and things aren't going very well, then, you know, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. I've heard Christians counsel other Christians considering divorce with those words. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Well, if that is truly the case, then why would, why stand up to any temptation? Because, I mean, temptation is going to temporarily make me happy, so I might as well dive in if you apply that logic full force. I want us this morning to see what Jesus said about divorce, when divorce is wrong, and why he said that divorce in certain circumstances is wrong. And briefly to speak to what I began with on the current battle going on for Christian marriage, I do not, again, want to say that it is, it's not something that we should engage in, because we should. 
But we should uphold with our words God's standards for marriage while we also uphold with our actions God's standards for marriage. It does not speak well for us when we look to someone as a hero in the fight, say a radio talk show host who would condemn homosexual marriage who himself has been married four times. That is not a consistent view on marriage, biblically speaking. So, we should go to the Word for our information and not think that this battle only started a few years ago, but that it started many years ago. And even you could go back to where the true battle started at the fall when Eve was told that your desire would be for your husband. That is to say, your desire would be to rule your husband. So, so there was immediately after the fall this clash between the will of Adam and Eve. Now, we don't see what their earliest fights were about. Personally, if I had to guess, I would think that maybe Eve might have been a little bit perturbed that her husband threw her under the bus before God Himself and said, it's the woman you gave me that caused me to sin. And men have been blaming their wives for their mistakes ever since. If we want to stand for marriage, the answer is, if you're married, to stay married. Even though Jesus allows for divorce, it is not a command that you must get divorced if there is unfaithfulness in marriage. Now, let's, let's take a broader view of the entire chapter. The passage that we just read is in the context of the kingdom of God. Jesus has already described God's eternal standards for anger. He said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment, and so on and so forth. God's standards for forgiveness. He said, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him. He described God's standards for standing against lust. If a man is look, looks upon a woman and lusts after her, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And then, even with that one, he's given us how we should fight, and that is with everything we have. Now, the standards given here in these three things about anger, about forgiveness, and about lust, they are very high. They're not easy. Jesus didn't say that anyone would be able to follow him that wanted to if you take half of a whim. To be a disciple means that you must take up the cross. So the way can be difficult and God's holy standards in our flesh are impossible. Paul describes that in Romans 7. As a representative Jew, he said, I cannot keep the law. I struggle. I strive. But the law that is outside, it flares up the sin that is within my heart. And so the more I try, the harder it becomes. And I can't do it. So God's standards are lofty. But they are lofty for a human being apart from Christ. The standards of God, the law of God, is given to us with the power of the Holy Spirit and with the grace of God. Wherein there is forgiveness of our sin that we have committed and will commit, but also... There is strength to withstand the daily temptations that come against us. So I'm not going to say that 
Any of these commands that we've covered already, that we will cover today, or that we will cover, are easy. But, something we cannot do, we can't afford to do this, is to say, well, that is really hard, so obviously Jesus didn't mean that the way He said it. You don't have to look very hard to find people who reinterpret God's Word because it is not pleasing and because it, ex- it expects from us what only He Himself can give. Jesus, in this passage, is contrasting teaching that was common in His day. That, and, and even He's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that says, if a man gets a divorce, he must give his wife a writing, that is a certificate of divorcement. When Jesus was speaking, marriage by many of the Jews, and of course in the pagan world, was a common thing. One commentator even said that, uh, particularly he was right, common, commenting on the book of Matthew, said that at this time, that is at Jesus' time, divorce was widely permitted even in Judaism. So it was not something where the Jews were living these very upright, righteous, and holy lives where their marriages were strong and together and there was a contrast between their marriages and the marriages of the world. There was a mixture of standards. And there were even teachers of the law who said, well, God obviously intends for many, He he, he wants many reasons for a man to be able to divorce his wife if necessary. The Pharisees, as well as I'm pretty sure the Sadducees, both held to an easy divorce view in Jesus' day. So Jesus is not speaking on something that was popular probably for even those that heard him. There were frivolous divorces in that time, not unlike our own. Man does not like commitment, especially long-term commitment. It requires more of us than we want to give. Our attention spans are short. We get tired. And many times, husbands and wives can become tired of each other. Now, I'm not going to ask you to admit if that is ever, if you've ever had that fleeting thought, which of course you immediately cast down as a thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and you confess to Him. I'm not going to ask, but talking to men and women who have been married for longer than a few years, you don't wake up every day like it's the first day of your marriage. It's not a perfect honeymoon. That's a gift of God. He put the person in your life not for your personal enjoyment, but for your personal sanctification. And rest assured, you are His instrument of sanctification for that other person, probably more so than they are to you. Which means you can be a pain every now and then. How do I know that? Well, I've talked to people. And what's more, I've been a pain. A lot. I I doubt that you question that. If you do, you may speak with my wife. But Jesus is saying, just because you get tired... Just because the road becomes heavy or hard and difficult, that does not give you a reason to leave and move on. 
Jesus said that there is only one reason given in this passage for divorce before God, and that is fornication or adultery. Now, there is some disagreement over whether or not adultery and fornication is the same thing. You can read some who say that the only, I mean, very strict beliefs that say the fornication here is only referring to if a man discovers that his, after being married, that his wife is not pure, therefore he can get a divorce then. And, and again, I don't want to dive into that. Jesus is saying in this passage that the sin of adultery was rampant among the Jews. And by the sin of adultery, he means men who are divorcing their wives and then marrying someone else. That he calls adultery. Now, if you look at it like that, that sin all of a sudden looks a lot more prevalent in our day. I mean, you know, there is still a pretty widely held, well, it's looked down on still to just commit open adultery. Where you're married to a person, yet you are with another person. However, according to what Jesus is saying, there's a lot more than just that one type of adultery. There's a lot more than when you divorce for a reason other than what the Lord has given and you marry. And let me insert something else here. Okay, I'm not saying that it is that a woman should live in an abusive marriage. All right, that is not my point at all. I'm not saying that separation itself is wrong or that it's God's will that a woman and even becoming more popular uh, husbands being abused. But even that is the time, uh, a person is required to remain in that relationship. But once you introduce remarriage, there are a lot of complications that come up. When a man divorces his wife, Jesus says in verse 32, he puts her in danger of committing adultery as well as the fact that he puts himself in danger. Of adultery. And when a society is an adulterous society, God will not bless it. When there is open sin, especially among those who call themselves saints, that society will not be blessed. Now, if you are still thinking, but what about so-and-so who I know who had this and who had that? And I'm referring this morning and I'm speaking about not people who have questionable situations, who it's very messy, and we all in this congregation know of situations that have been very harmful, very messy, and it can be difficult to untangle everything. But brothers and sisters, in our society today, there are people who get divorced because I don't like this other person and no other reason than that. We just aren't close anymore. We don't love each other anymore. And God said, that is wrong. That is what I want us to consider. And if young saints who are not married will go into a marriage with the understanding that unless there is some type of 
what I will call covenantal death. As in, when there's adultery in a marriage, as, we, as I said last week, that is a type of death. A covenant has been severed. All right? Unless that is the case, divorce is wrong. There even there was one Christian leader on television several years ago that gave advice nationally to a man who wrote a letter. This man said, "My wife has Alzheimer's and I cannot." deal with it anymore. Can I divorce her? And this Christian leader said, yes, you can because she is no longer truly being a wife to you. So that is grounds for divorce. And this man was not some far-out liberal type. He's a man who's been strong in the Christian conservative movement for many years. We've got a problem. And as easy as it is to shake fingers at other people, we must be sure that first we are cultivating our own marriages so that we don't get to this point where we say, you know, I just can't do it anymore. It's not just a one-time decision when you enter into the covenant where you say, it is till death that we part. It's a decision you make every day as a saint before God and before your spouse that you will continue to love, honor, cherish, and serve that other person. Through no-fault divorce laws, we have adopted a philosophy that's similar to that of Jesus' day. Or to the Jews, especially in Jesus' day. That is, you don't have to state much of a reason except something like irreconcilable differences. To quote G.K. Chesterton, and he was speaking regarding Christianity, and I will apply it to marriage. The standards of marriage have not been tried and found wanting. I'll repeat that again. The standards of marriage have not been tried and found wanting. They've been tried, found difficult and left untried. So, our foundation for understanding and viewing marriage must be restored. And I want us this morning to hear three reasons why marriage is for life. Three reasons why marriage is for life. Number one, marriage is God's creation. Marriage is God's creation. Therefore, He gets to set the rules. I remember years ago playing some type of game that my one of I believe is my sisters introduced me to, and it was remarkably similar to hide and go seek, but she called it by something else, and I didn't understand why she did, but I played the game, and being four years older, I was able to be I was more successful at the game than she was. So, uh, right in the middle of the game then, she flipped the rules around to give her a more distinct advantage in the game. Then, uh, once I came around to the new rules, she changed them again. And I said, you can't do this. I said, this is hide and go seek. You can't so she said, it's not hide-and-go-seek. It's my game, and I make the rules. Well, thankfully, my sister is not God. 
When he, he makes rules, He does not change those rules. But because He is our Creator, and not only our Creator, but the Creator of marriage, He is the only one that can decide what and how a marriage may end. Now, we can. We can break His rules, but we must understand that if we divorce and remarry outside of His standards, yes, we did that, but we have broken His law. And we must keep that in mind. Now turn with me please to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus here gives a more full explanation of marriage. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, It is lawful, excuse me, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain, they twain, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, and remarriage. His immediate reference is not to Deuteronomy 24 where the law is given about divorce. His reference is to the creation itself where God said, and Jesus quotes what His Father said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the twain shall be one flesh. Jesus refers to the creation order itself. He refers back to the historical account of Genesis as his explanation and answer to the question on whether or not divorce is permitted. Because whatever God has put together, no man can break apart. We're not allowed to break it Apart. That doesn't mean that He will prevent us from it, but under His law, it is not permitted. God made marriage before He made any other institution. And only He may determine when it can stop. We are not allowed to mix His command with our opinion and then go with whichever one suits us. Incidentally, this is one reason why those, almost in every situation, those who would ignore or oppose God's standards for marriage usually don't believe in the historical account of Genesis. And I would say almost to a person, they don't. Because if you really believe that God made a real man named Adam and from his bone, from bone of his bone, made a real woman, Eve, and put them together before himself in marriage, then you can't easily separate that and remake it your own way. However, if you do believe, as is in vogue right now, among many commentators and biblical scholars, if you don't believe that Adam was even real, or that the creation account and Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is, and even 3 is more a, a a story to inform us of how uh, how wonderful God writes poetry and displays His glory in telling stories and things like that, which again, that is a common position. 
if you bring all that into it and you eliminate the historical man and woman and the historical account of creation, then there's no problem remaking marriage whatever you want to make it, including divorce. You can tear it down and build it up any way that you want to, as long as it fits your standards, whatever standards you've come up with today. And then if you have new standards tomorrow, because you don't have any historical ties to Genesis, you can turn it into that as well. That's why Genesis is really important. When Paul wants to make his argument about why women are not ministers in the church, why women are not elders and cannot be elders in the church, he doesn't appeal to reason. He appeals to Genesis. And I would also add that those who support women being elders in the church also disregard the historical nature of Genesis. You do away with that and you do away with the foundation for a lot of who we are and what we have today. So number one, marriage is God's creation and only He can set the rules for it. Number two, marriage is the way the Father portrays His covenant with His people. Marriage is the way that God portrays His covenant with His people. Come with me, please, to the book of Hosea, chapter 2. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 18. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of the heaven and with the creeping things on the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee to me forever. That's marriage language. I will betroth thee to me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee to me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. We know the story of Hosea. How Hosea and his wife, Gomer, she was unfaithful, and the Lord gave an illustration of what His people had done. But He's giving a promise in Hosea too. He said, I'm going to betroth you to me, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. That is His promise. And that passage is quoted in the book of Romans by Paul when he's talking about including the Gentiles and he said, I'll make a people which were not my people. So this betrothal is widened quite a bit. Then we know, you don't have to turn there in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told that Jesus, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. So we had this picture of a bride, but also, and this, it's something we see throughout the Word. You have a picture throughout the Scripture of there being two women. One, faithful, pure. The other, a harlot. And it, this picture grows. Hosea is a part of it. But it culminates in the book of Revelation where you have the woman who is called the whore of Babylon who committed unfaithfulness and she's stoned. She's killed. But then you have the bride, the pure 
spotless bride. This is who the Lord has betrothed to Himself. The virgin bride comes to her husband, who is Jesus. And when we, as saints of God, do not live out the meaning of a covenantal marriage, of a faithful marriage before God, how can we expect the people in the world to believe anything we have to say about the value of marriage? If we don't portray these things for them, where will they see an example? So, marriage shows God's covenant with His people. And Christian marriages should all portray that covenant. Number three, marriage is how God intends to bring godly children into the world. Marriage is how God intends to bring godly children into the world. Turn, please, to Malachi 2. Malachi 2. Begin reading in verse 14. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Or why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did ye did not he make one? And yet he had the re, yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, or he hates divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts, Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously, or that ye not be unfaithful. Here we read that God is angry with His people because they are quickly divorcing their wives. They are being unfaithful and they are getting divorced. But why is He angry? Not only is His covenant being broken, which is an offense to Him, but, as He said in verse 15, did He not make one, as in did He not make the two one flesh? Yet He had the residue, or what is the remainder of the Spirit, and wherefore one? Or why did He make the two one? That He might seek a godly seed. Why did that? That is not to say that a godly seed is the only reason for marriage. It's also not to say that unless there is a Christian marriage in place, that you will not have godly children. That doesn't mean that either. The Lord can raise up stones, or excuse me, He can raise up sons of Abraham from stones, okay? He has elect from divorced families. Praise God, I will say. But, His intention he is that there be godly, faithful families that raise godly children according to His words to Malachi. Wherefore one? Why did He make the two one? That He may seek a godly seed. Therefore, so, because of that, because he wants a godly seed, don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Marriage is for life because that faithful marriage lays the foundation in children for a godly home. I don't know exact statistics. But I don't really think we need exact statistics. I, I, I think that there's still enough biblical sense in us that we can understand how a godly marriage will contribute a lot more to raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord than a marriage where it is broken apart and kids are shuffled back and forth from parent to parent. I'm not condemning that. I'm not condemning the fact that in some cases families do as 
much as they can in the situation that they're in. And I realize that and I'm thankful that they try. But that is not the best. Now I know, again, this is not an easy issue. We have all witnessed what divorce can do and again how messy it can be sorting things out. I know there are situations that are hard and some of these are harder than any of us will ever fully comprehend. But we live in a dark time. And in a dark time, we need the light of Christ's commands to shine forth, including His command about divorce. And that it should not be something that is easy for us to do. This exhortation from our Lord is like a lighthouse that would warn us not to run up against the rocks of this particular sin. You've already heard me say that it's not wrong always to divorce. Jesus says when it is when it should be permitted. And again, there are situations where a separation is best for marriage. But most of the divorces in our society today are not based on scriptural reasons at all. They're based on personal feelings which Jesus said in Matthew 19, 8, He called that the hardness of your heart. He said for the hardness of your heart He granted divorce. So, for those who have been involved in divorce, this is not intended to make that person feel low down or dirty or despicable. Or if you ever sin in this way, if you ever for whatever reason, decide, you know, I just, I don't have feelings for this person anymore and we're going to divorce. That is sin. But it's not unforgivable sin. No sin is outside of the grace of God. Okay? So that doesn't mean that you are forever banished from God's kingdom. But, it does mean that if you sin, you should confess your sin. Forgiveness is not glossing over what God calls sin and expecting Him to forget about it. It's not pretending that you've not done anything wrong and just hoping you can make it through the rest of your life. When we confess, that is when we agree with God that we are wrong, then He says if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. The worst thing we can do is to treat sin like it doesn't matter in the name of love. In Proverbs 13, 5, that he that spares his rod hates his son. Well, the broader application of that principle to us is if we don't make the commands of God clear with love and humility, but clarity nonetheless, that's what God calls hate speech. We consider hate speech telling in our day someone who is in sin that's sin he says hate speech is ignoring sin so if you've sinned and you know this is not just if you've sinned in this area if you've sinned in any area confess your sin to God there's nothing that is outside of His wonderful, glorious, and sovereign grace. He saves the worst and raises them up to Himself. But He calls us to repent. 
He loves us too much to let us remain in our sin. And when we confess sin to Him, His arms are wide. He doesn't just call us. He draws us and brings us to Himself. So whatever you may have done, if it's here, if it's in another area, He forgives. But as Christians, the thing that we must do to uphold marriage according to His Word is not yell and scream and call other people names, which I hope we're not doing that anyway. The best thing we can do is to live godly and faithful lives in God-honoring marriages and make known His words in love to whomever we come across. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we do thank You that Your gifts are greater than we can ask or think. We thank You that our hope is founded on the rock, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that You've given us clear instructions regarding Your commands in marriage. And I pray for all those in this room who are married or will be married that You would build in us a holy appreciation for this institution that You've given to portray Your glory, to honor You, and to bring godly children into the world. May Your name be honored this day. In Jesus' name, Amen.